Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. The Collective Impact Forum is a nonprofit field-building initiative that is co-hosted in partnership by the nonprofit consulting firm FSG and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. In this episode, we discuss how to build and strengthen partnerships with parent leaders so that the wide spectrum of parent voices and needs are kept at the center when supporting early relational health for families. To explore this topic, we learn about the national initiative Nurture Connection and how their partnership with a diverse group of parent leaders has helped evolve and advance their work. Joining us for this conversation on supporting parent partnerships is Claudia Risti, Bryn Fortune, Mia Halfen, and Becky Jakes-Hasek. We hear how centering parent voices has been key to their work, as well as what challenges they have encountered and worked through along the way. Moderating this discussion is Collective Impact Forum Executive Director Jennifer Splansky-Juster. Let's listen in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Jennifer Juster, Executive Director of the Collective Impact Forum. Here at the forum, we are always eager to lift up examples of how collective efforts are embodying different approaches to centering equity in their work. One core strategy of centering equity that we often talk about, as outlined in the article, Centering Equity and Collective Impact, is listening to and acting with community. Different efforts, of course, take different approaches to listening and acting with community. And this plays out in terms of how these initiatives seek to understand the experiences of community and people with lived experience, how these efforts decide who will lead the work, how governance is structured and engagement is conducted, and ultimately, who is really engaged in moving the work of the collaborative forward. Today, I'm thrilled to be diving into this topic of listening to and acting with community with leaders from Nurture Connection. Nurture Connection is a national collective effort focused on growing the movement to promote early relational health. Nurture Connection advances early relational health so that all families can experience the joy and lifelong health benefits that come from strong, positive, and nurturing relationships in early childhood. In today's conversation, we'll learn how this innovative effort has put parent partnership at the core of everything they do as they listen to and act with community, both nationally across the United States and locally in community. Joining me for today's conversation are four leaders from this work. Each will introduce themselves in a moment, but it is my pleasure to welcome Mia Halthon, Claudia Aritzi, Bryn Fortune, and Becky Jakes-Hasek to the conversation. Welcome, everyone. I would love to start by asking you to each introduce yourself and tell us about your role with Nurture Connection. And Mia, why don't we start with you? All right. I am Mia Halthine. I am a mother of four and a parent leader out of Detroit, Michigan. I've been with parent leadership for about a little over five years. Um, With Nurture Connection, my role is I am one of six parent leaders that um, form the Family Network Collaborative, and I um, represent 10 families that either identify as Black or Brown and that have received home visiting services in the state of Michigan. Thank you, Mia. And Claudia. Hi, my name is Claudia Aristi, and I'm the director for the Reach Out and Read program at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. I've been with Reach Out and Read for 22 years. And, and therefore, this work with the Family Network Collaborative and trying um, to promote early relational health um, was an immediate um, attraction because of the alignment with the work I've been doing with families here through Reach Out Read. And the um, parent voice um, that I represent, the partnerships that I'm representing is the families who are immigrants and speak Spanish, which is the highest percentage of families in our clinic. And how about you, Bryn? Please introduce yourself to our listeners. Yes, I'm Bryn Fortune, and um, Claudia didn't mention this, but both Claudia and I, our origins and our roots were that of parents who became parent leaders. 
that kind of moved into our roles and our jobs. And I have been a part of, since the 80s, late 80s, uh, helping different systems try to um, authentically engage and partner with families. And so um, I come to this work as the coordinator for the Family Network Collaborative for our efforts. And Becky. Thanks. Uh, great to be here. My name is Becky Jakes-Hasek. Um, I'm a senior program director with Health Plus Studio, which is a social impact agency that's been working closely with the leadership of Nurture Connection, um, both the overall strategic development and design of the initiative, um, as well as all of our strategic communications activities for the initiative. And I am a mom of two young and crazy boys. <laughs> Wonderful. Great to meet you all. And I am also the mom of two children, a five and seven year old. So this conversation is very near and dear to my heart as well. So tell us a little bit more about the overall collaborative movement, Nurture Connection. Yeah, I'm happy to start here. Um, so as, as you shared, Jen, at the beginning, uh, which was a great overview of Nurture Connection, but we are a growing, engaged, and connected network um, committed to promoting early relational health. Um, so for those of you who early relational health may be a new term, it's certainly not a new concept, but the idea here is it's the state of emotional well-being that grows from those positive emotional connections between young children and their parents or caregivers. Um, and it's really foundational to children's healthy growth and development, um, as well as their parents and caregivers' sense of competence, connection, and overall well-being. And these relationships also actually have a, a, a protective uh, factor for the family as well um, from the harmful effects of stress. So there's really positive impacts at multiple levels from the child to the parent or caregiver, as well as the family unit. Um, and the reason we're so feel so strongly about promoting early relational health right now, um, given kind of the current context, our U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy just cited an epidemic of loneliness and isolation in our country, um, with health risks as detrimental as smoking daily. So um, they issued a statement about what we can do about this disease of disconnection, as they've been calling it. So we know this issue is critical um, and urgent to the health and well-being of, of everyone in our country. And for us, we believe we got to start as early as possible, you know, from the beginning of life or even prenatally um, to start building these strong, positive and nurturing connections and relationships. Um, so that's really the vision for Nurture Connection. It's a future where every family experiences the joy and benefits of strong, positive, and nurturing relationships where every community and every system supports emotional connection between parents and caregivers um, and their babies and toddlers, and really view early relational health as being vital to creating a healthier, a healthier society. Such an important topic and so timely, as you mentioned, Becky. Can you tell us a little bit about the collaborative effort Nurture Connection? Like who, who are some of the partners in this work? And yeah, tell us a little bit more about the collaborative itself. Sure, I'm happy to start and then please have others uh, join in. Um, but we, so we really believe that what we're envisioning for the future, that's a big job that no one organization, one person, one institution, one community um, can take on by themselves. So the idea for Nurture Connection is how do we create a really big tent that folks see themselves in? Um, anyone who is promoting the health and well-being of young children and families has a place within Nurture Connection. So um, we know that we need every voice, every expertise, every community, um, and this should be across geographies, systems, sectors, and expertise. So right now we have multiple leadership groups and then a broader network um, that we're working within. And this includes parents, doulas, uh, community health workers, systems leaders, policymakers, um, funders, pediatricians, researchers. Uh, we really have a wide range of partners and leaders in this effort and um, believe that there's a seat at the table for anyone who cares about young kids and families. So we're, we're quite broad in our, in our membership uh, for this work. 
Yeah, a big, a big tent indeed. And as part of that, and what you mentioned first, parent partnership is such an important piece of this work and where it really started. So tell us a little bit about how you launched this movement with the Family Network Collaborative. Yeah, we really began, we first started thinking about if we were going to bring together a steering committee or a governance body, and we knew we wanted to have uh, parents as uh, true partners authentically inside the work, first, the first thing we recognized is we need to figure out how we're going to build our parent network collaborative. We didn't call it at that point that name, but how would we build this effort? So we first began by identifying who are the six communities that we think probably their voices have been the least heard and the least understood in terms of anything we already know about the work we're doing. So we very much started from an approach uh, with an equity lens and we identified that we wanted to hear from a community of families who were Spanish-speaking immigrants. That would be who Claudia is representing. We wanted to learn from a group of families who identify as black and brown and have recently received home visiting services. We wanted to learn from uh, a Native American voice and currently, and obviously we, this is the beginning, this is not an end point, but initially we are now working with the San Felipe Pueblo out of New Mexico and one of their parent leaders. We wanted the rural Southern voice. So we're working with um, a group out of Alabama. We wanted the voice of children who have special health care needs and disabilities, their parents. So we have a representative from Maryland who recently moved to Ohio and that group of families, and then a fatherhoods network who is out of the state of Washington. So we knew we wanted to have it across the country, across the various cultures. And we also recognize that commonly what initiatives do is bring a couple of parents to a table and have those perspectives. We were clear that parent leaders, you know, all of us, our perceptions change as we have more opportunities. And so we knew by the time we identified parent leaders, they will have had more opportunities than the families living inside the neighborhood. And we wanted both perspectives. So we identified six parent leaders of obviously me and Claudia are two of those, who we knew had the connection to the 10 neighborhood voices that they're representing. Because our design was that as anything inside of the nurture connection work, that we're really wanting this rich family voice, we're going to ask the question, the parent leaders are going to now interview the questions for their 10 family leaders and bring them back that information as a group to the six parent leaders. This group of parent leaders meets bi-weekly. And we're going to, by the time, for instance, Mia and Steven join the steering committee, they're representing a field of expertise from the parent voice of these 66 voices. So just as your researcher and your scientist and your pediatrician and your policymaker are all coming to the steering committee with a field of expertise, what's different about our design is we've set it up so that whether it's in work groups or the steering committee, the family voice comes in with a field of expertise and not just a couple of people's individual experiences. Thank you, Bryn. And the way you talk about really working toward moving away from tokenism in representation and in participation is really powerful. And I would love to hear Mia and Claudia from you about this experience of being parent leaders and sort of liaising and really representing the expertise of the broader set of um, your community in the steering committee and in other spaces. I've worked on quite a few um, parent leadership initiatives, and that's what's so unique about the Family Network Collaborative and Nurture Connection is the trust, transparency, and authenticity that that it brings. Um, quite a few initiatives that I've worked on, um, it's like a one and done. So you, the parents give the information and then you never know what happens. Um, it can go on to a bigger movement and they use different parents. Uh, but that's not true of this initiative. Um, there's so much transparency. I know um, where I am, what my voice is, and they make sure that it's authentic 
and um, the parents within my community, that's a, another issue that they don't really always trust that, okay, you're asking me these questions, you want to know my information, my family's um, experiences, but what am I actually getting out of this or where is this going? But with the Family Network Collaborative, the parents know exactly what's going on. They have their voices at the table. I bring it to the table with the steering committee. And um, that's also true that I feel like I'm um, just as important when I bring back um, as part of the steering committee, I bring back six, six voices of all the different communities. And I feel just as heard and um, trusted as um, the professionals at the table. And for me, it has been a wonderful experience because after working for so many years with Reach Out and Read in a pediatric setting, um, coming from the community I'm representing, sometimes um, you might fall into the trap of believing you know it all, right? And that um, this experience has really pushed me to set aside my interpretation and really bring their perspective, which is what we want and what we need in order to inform the work that we're trying to do. And in other experiences I had had where I was asked to be that parent leader, um, that was not the case, right? It wasn't what Claudia thinks the family needs or want or their experiences. This is not about me. This is actually about them. And every time I would interview the families and ask the questions, um, it was a really humble experience to see the responses and, and, and to confront myself in the mirror and say, oh, that's not necessarily what I would have thought or would have said. And so it has been really an opening um, experience in terms of um, discovering, a discovering experience for me, for the families to see that there is a group that actually values their opinion and their expertise and their experience and that um, they're an important, a very important component from the beginning as part of this process. Thank you, Claudia and Mia, for, um, for sharing those perspectives. And I would love to hear a little bit more about maybe some specific examples of things that you think might have played out differently in this work because you have been in such deep conversation with and co-creating and co-designing this work with the broader set of parents in your communities? I have a, a, a really particular uh, experience um, with the Family Network Collaborative. One of the um, questions that we took to our families was, who would you want to hear information about early relational health? So um, our families came back with, with answers that we weren't sure if they really understood the question. So kind of like professionals, um, nurses, not people that were really personal to them. So to us, we said, well, maybe they didn't understand the question. And it wasn't an educational level kind of thing. It was just maybe it was just um, we didn't make it in regular terms. So then we um, coined the term living room language, which so we went back to the families and we asked them, who would you trust? or feel comfortable hearing information or advice about early relational health. And we got totally different answers, which were our parent, other parents and our family members and librarians and people in the community. So in particular to my community, when I went back with the question again, they were like, they really cared if we really understood the question and I'm like yeah and they were like well that that doesn't happen usually okay whatever answer we give is what we give because they my community feels like they're not really heard or not really seen so it really doesn't matter so they that really touched them that we took the time to go back to them and reword the question and we really cared about their experiences or how they they felt about that. And to add to that, for my community, then um, there was another level of complexity. So here we were talking about living room language, right? And now you have to think about how do I translate this into Spanish, right? In English, everything is so much shorter, so much easier to say. And then in Spanish, might be triple the words. Um, so thinking about how to put it in living room language in Spanish, um, 
that would resonate would really elicit the type of responses that we were looking for. Um, and one example of that was when we were thinking about the name of the initiative, right? And um, it was a whole process. And we each individually were making guesses about what would be the winner. And then when we went back to our family and we were encountering really very different responses from what we thought it would be. Um, and one of the things that came across with uh, my families was that it was lacking in terms of, because the word nurture in Spanish, it's not really a word that we use, right? Um, when we think about nurture, we talk more about love, right? And then um, in the names that were provided, the family said, but I don't see the love there. Where is the love? Where is the family? <laughs> and one way to honor what they were bringing was really thinking about, okay, we are, are picking the name that the majority of the families represented through the family network collaborates. Um, chose, but then coming up with the idea, we need to have a different tagline in Spanish that really honors what the families are saying they feel is important about this message. Yeah, and I just want to add, it's just really the emphasis of what you're really hearing from both Mia and Claudia. You know, it's this piece of opportunity. Parent leaders oftentimes because they've had these opportunities, don't have that fresh eye perspective. So what you're really hearing is how much we built our structure so that we're really hearing from those neighborhood voices. And there have been times with we, with the six parent leaders and me as coordinator, we've had a conversation and we collectively have thought, oh, this is it, only to have them go do the interviews. And it's like, it's not it at all for those, what I call those surprise eyes. So that's really, if you think about how we're structured, we're layering up our voice from those very fresh perspectives to our parent leaders who can take our systems language and translate it into living room language. And then rolls that up into how Mia and Steven can be on the steering committee and represent this field of expertise from the families and be really pure peers to researchers and scientists and so forth. So here are the different layerings of how we're rolling this out. Nice, and Brenda, who, uh, you've mentioned Stephen, tell us who Stephen oh, is. Sorry, Stephen, <laughs> I, I do that because he's serving on the steering committee with Mia. The, the Family Network Collaborative chose who the two members would join along with me who make up 25% of the steering committee. Stephen is our parent leader representing the Fatherhoods Council out of the state of Washington. So the people he's interviewing are all dads. And the other piece, because it was asked last week and something me and I were doing, we really do have more than 66 voices because there are times that, for instance, you know, Stephen may interview 20 dads, but we keep our demographics and our ideas contained to what we can say with certainty because beyond 10 moves around a bit. But the other piece I would want people to know because this is really a part of our structure our demographics of our 66 voices is 85% of those have families five and under. Because one of the things you often hear is that you can't find the family's voices for early childhood. And, you know, essentially this structure is doing a great job of that. The other thing that we have is the demographics from not just across the country, but the different um, breakdowns of this group. And 45% of the voices from across these 66 are families who live in poverty or low income. So there's other demographics, but those are the two, because often you hear people say, we can't find the early, the, they're so busy with their babies and their children. And it's like, no, we can really do this when we, you know, clearly Mia and Claudia are trusted in their neighborhoods in their work. So if we roll it up this way, we can find these voices just fine. Yeah, and the 66, um, just because there are so many layers we're talking about here, that 66 is uh, the six parent leaders that you mentioned right up front. So Mia, Claudia, Stephen, plus the three others that you have mentioned, reaching into their communities, their neighborhoods with 10 other parents. So it's uh, th that is how we get to that 66 that then 
have a subset with Mia and Steven sitting on the National Steering Committee. So I just want to draw that out to kind of connect to those six different demographic groups that you mentioned up front, Bryn. And I will say, um, I think it is not often that we hear fatherhood and dads um, specifically called out and represented in conversations, particularly with young parents. So um, I want to just underscore that and uh, recognize the importance of elevating the father's voice as well. You know, I'll just add to one piece. The other voice you often don't hear is the Southern rural voice, which is a whole different culture unto itself. And in many of the pieces I see, you actually don't see that voice represented often. And there, as, as both Claudia and Mia can tell you, Tish is the name of the parent leader. Tish's voice is often very different from some of the other communities. So it's really a very important thing to bring these different voices together. So parent partnership, as we were just talking about, is very clear in the structure of the um, FNC to Family Network Collaborative. That's the six communities, uh, six leaders with their communities. Um, but we also know that in addition to the steering committee, parents are represented even in other parts of the broader effort, maybe the work groups, if you will. Can you tell us more about parent engagement in those other settings too? So, of course, this is a building initiative. I mean, I think we're about, what, 14 months in, Becky, into this. So, again, it's a young initiative. Um, so, while we have six or seven different working groups, they're not all up and running yet, if you will. <laughs> but I will give the example of the research network. We have um, the FNC is represented in, uh, we have a research network uh, learning community, which is bringing together a number of researchers and scientists who are really interested in the neuroscience part of early relational health. And so, you know, there's, um, there's scholars from Columbia and Stanford, and they're from all over the country. And in that work group, because we were particularly interested in, for instance, in the body of research, how do we really partner with families from the beginning? Because we recognize that traditional research, it begins with data. Well, what, what data we gather never had these neighborhood voices telling us what data we should be gathering. So their voice is left out from right where we start. And, and then we move and then we take what the science is telling us to understand the research, put it into practice, and then look for the outcomes. That's the traditional trajectory of research. This learning community looked and said, let's look at it from two angles. And this is about the parent partnership within research. And said, what happens if, let's explore every one of those and see how, what structure we would be using to have parent partnership. We are still in the discovery of that from that pure science researcher lens. But the other thing we did was um, flip it over and say, what would it look like if we worked with a participatory or human-centered designed kind of approach of implementation science? And that's where we partnered with Stanford. And just a couple of weeks ago, we had um, four parent leaders, two who are from the FNC and two who were from the communities who have been interviewed, that went to Stanford and for the first time, the human-centered design lab is actually an approach where they take a question or a problem they're trying to solve. Typically, their graduate students are part of the design school. And then they go do some sets of interviewings of stakeholders. So they really go out and learn about the problem from the people in the field. And then they create a prototype of what solutions might be. This was the first time where even Stanford had taken on the idea that what would it happen if we did like a pop-up or a makeshift structure to the design school that's a bit of a hybrid, brought in parent leaders as part of the design students. Not people we're interviewing, but they're part of our design students. And they're gonna go out with the student, the graduate students and do the interviewing. So we just did that two weeks ago to really look at what does it look like to bring the parents right from the beginning and not in a learn from us, but learn with us approach. And it was fascinating to listen to the questions the graduate students asked, the questions that the uh, parent leaders asked, and then the prototypes and how you saw these two very different cultures, frankly, coming together in the prototypes. So I'll stop there, but that's an example 
of in all the working groups, we're really challenging ourselves on the edge of innovation. What does it really mean from the ground up to partner with families on policy? What does it really mean in research? So we're in this exploration and innovation of looking at all these. And yeah, I'll just add as as we've been working with the steering committee, this is a 12-person steering committee, and as Brent, Brent has mentioned, um, a quarter of the steering committee is, is made up of members from the FNC or representatives from the FNC, which is fantastic. And the Family Network Collaborative was actually established and set up before the steering committee. So in a lot of ways, the parent leaders have been at this from the very beginning and transitioned then on to the steering committee as others joined as well. And our steering committee is made up of parent leaders, funders, uh, pediatricians, systems leaders, researchers, uh, nonprofit leaders, et cetera. And I will just say one thing, and, and Bryn has really um, shared this from the beginning, it's like, yes, we're centering parent partnership and that's critical to all of the work we're doing. Yet we're seeing parent voice equal to prof professional voice, right? That every member, for instance, at that steering committee table has equal voice in this initiative. We're not forgetting about parents, but, but we have to have a power dynamic where there's equality there um, in terms of voices represented. And so one of the ways that we've been um, actualizing that or executing on that is through this decision-making process called gradients of agreement. And um, you may, if you want to look up gradients of agreement, things will pop up to show you that, that scale. But what's been so nice about that is that even if we only had one parent voice on the steering committee, which we wouldn't, um, any one voice can pause a process if they're not comfortable with how we're proceeding with a recommendation or a decision. So you 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 know you rate on a scale from zero to eight, I think, and if you're at a three or below, saying you know I'm really not sure about this, I'm having pause, I'm feeling uncomfortable about this, the, the group process stops. And then we figure out how do we come to resolution from that? What is the compromise that will allow us to move that person from a three to a four? Which would be like, we can proceed. I don't love it, <laughs> but we can proceed. And so that, that um, structure of decision-making has worked very well for us in terms of equity um, and decision-making on our steering committee. So I just wanted to elevate that as we're, as we're talking about these different voices um, that are around our tables. And I just want to add one piece because I think it's critical for the field to know. And we've experienced it both at the Family Network Collaborative table as well as the steering committee. One of the ways you know you're in these very authentic partnerships is there will be tension in the differences. And again, the FNC, just as parent leaders, have experienced the tension. And one of the things I always say, it's one of the it's one of your audit systems. If you don't have tension in your conversations, you're actually probably not in partnership because your viewing perspectives of a researcher and parent and the expertise they're bringing are not alike. And we're wanting to find that sweet spot of where we come into agreement. And again, even within our six different communities, we've had tension and differences with the FNC. And so it's about how do you facilitate your way through the tension into these beautiful agreements. So the gradient is part of it, but part of it, I always want people to know if you're not in the tension, you're probably not in the partnership work yet. Yet, You're still trying to get there. Yeah, staying at more of the surface level if you don't get to those, um, the, the conversations that have tension in them. So, and thank you for the mention of gradients of agreement. It's a great resource. Um, and we can include a link to something in the show notes about that. So tell me um, what have been some of the biggest challenges in the work and how you've worked through these. Jennifer, I have to say um, I, I had challenges at the very beginning with my community. Um, I want to say first, which I, I talked about earlier about trust, transparency, authenticity, which is a problem um, with um, the black and brown community. Um, so going to find my 10 parents, which identify as black or brown and, and use home visiting services and going to them and asking them to be a part of this initiative was very hard. <laughs> 
And uh, Bryn can attest to this because at first I was like, Bryn, I, I don't know if I can do this. This is not going to work. I can't get anybody to say yes um, because they didn't trust that this was going to be authentic. Was their voice going to be really at the table? Were they going to authentically use their family experiences? So I had to really like sell them that I, I believe and trust in this and it's different. And they know I've been in the community. I've been on different product uh, projects. And so this was different. So, yes, I, that was the biggest challenge. We, we definitely are way past that. My parents are all in. They're so excited. One of my parents or one of the ones that was able to um, be a part of the research project. So that was one of my actual 10 parents, and now she's able to be on the research project. She was actually um, with us yesterday for another project to give her um, expertise and experiences. So my parents are all in, but that was definitely a big um, challenge was to get them to trust and believe that this was going to be authentic compared to other community initiatives. And another thing was there's so much trauma and triggers around that in the black and brown community that um, th their family experiences, is this really going to help or is this going to harm? So I really had to tell them that, no, I, I believe in this and, and it's going to be a good movement. So I'm wondering if uh, Mia, because she spoke of it last week, would you just reference, because you had shared with a group last week about the idea of belonging and what that really meant to your community. So if you would just add to what you just spoke, that belonging piece, that would be terrific. Yeah. So um, last week we, we were at a, a summit and one of the days was about belonging. And, and me personally, I've, I have never felt that I've belonged um, on any of the parent leadership, and I say any of the parent leadership um, projects that I have been a part of until the Family Network Collaborative. And that is true of my parents also. They feel like they belong. They they have a voice. And, and this co-creation and partnership is, is so unique and important. And that, that in the black and brown community, we feel, we often feel unheard, unseen, not recognized. So being in a an initiative that we feel like we belong makes a really big difference. Thank you for adding that, Mia, and for the prompt, Bryn, yeah. And Claudia, please. Well, I just wanted to circle a little bit back to what Bryn had mentioned in terms of the dynamics within our own parent leader group, right? Um, and how it was a process in the very beginning to get to know each other, to get that, to build that trust that we're talking about that parents might be lacking in us or in, in an institution or whoever they think we're representing. But we also had to be able to build that trust among ourselves because we would be spending a lot of time together. And, 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 and the way that this was set up and Bring has been really wonderful in being the moderator and, and such a wonderful guy for us in helping us build that connection early on with each other, um, because that was important too. That would be the glue that can hold us together in bringing then our perspective and feeling this is a safe space, not only for us to bring our thoughts, about the whole uh, process, but also then to bring what our, we were hearing from our families because we felt that this would be a space where it would be honored, right? Um, and I think that was, a, I don't, I don't want to say a challenge, but it was definitely a process, right? And with ups and downs um, along the whole way, and we have learned a lot from each other, not only from the parents, but I think each of the parent leaders brings such a unique perspective. And um, I'm in awe of learning from the parents and from my colleagues in the group. Um, the, other, the other challenge that I would say for me that I remember in the very beginning is um, when you hear about early relational health, as Becky was saying, this is, maybe it's a new term, but it's not something new, right? And when you have something that at the same time, it seems so simple, but it's so complex, sometimes it can be lost. It's like people say, what? What are you talking about? It's like, um, so finding ways to, um, 
to translate that not only into Spanish, but it, it, even in English when you're talking to people about this concept. Um, so that um, they see the simplicity, but at the same time, the, the relevance and the importance doesn't get lost because it's so simple, right? Because it has so many deep layers. Um, it affects so many different areas of development of these young children that we're um, talking about and um, in the families as well. So I just want to bring that perspective as well, because um, the hope is that one day, right, everybody will say um, early relational health, of course, and no one is questioning what it is. But in this point, um, we're still um, building that momentum. And we find that even among our own colleagues who work with parents and, and when you say, hmm, and um, it has been really interesting to see um, what people perceive um, might be the importance or, or the layers that I was um, talking about earlier. And I just want to add something to what Claudia said. So Nicole is our parent leader who has represented the Native American voice. And um, our original leader was a gal by the name of Christina from the Diné people, the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. And in the very earliest stages, both Claudia and Christina came back from those very earliest early relational health questions. And both communities, it was resounding. They said, wow, you're finally catching up to what we've always known. So the cultural wisdom from these ancient traditions really even began to show through right in the beginning um, and why bringing the different cultures, how we all get to learn together. And I'll just quickly pick up, I mean, Claudia, what you shared resonates so much with um, the work that we've been looking at at an, a national level, both in, of course, as we're promoting a, a movement around early relational health, everything we do needs to center relationship and connection. And that doesn't come easy sometimes, right? And so we are so intentional in kind of every way we set up meetings, conversations to create that space where people can share and be vulnerable and trust. And um, I guess, unfortunately, our country gives us a lot of opportunities of current events and news where these things like the overturning of Roe v. Wade or like the Uvalde, Texas school shooting, these things hit us at a very personal and deep level. And throughout our meetings in the, with the steering committee, we've been able to open up space to reflect on these really difficult current events, which I think help create more of that vulnerability, that trust, that safe space um, with our members, which has been really critical to the trust-built relationships that we have today. And then similarly, Claudia, as we're thinking about like the, the national tent that we're trying to, to create where anyone could find their seat or their place within this, who care about young kids and families. Um, early relational health is another term. It's another, another something for the field that already feels crowded and people have, you know, their issues that they care about, that they're advocating for, that they're getting resources for to, to implement. So how do we create a network and a growing movement that doesn't feel competitive, that feels collaborative, that feels welcoming and inclusive um, and feels generative to be a part of. So I see that as an ongoing challenge for us um, to ensure that we are driving with equity, parent voice, et cetera, but in a way that others can find themselves here and see, okay, there's points of connection, collaboration, um, and that we're really doing this in hopes to accelerate the impact that each and every one of us have. So I think that's going to be an ongoing challenge for us as we continue to grow this initiative and this network. Yeah, thank you all. Um, this is, it, it has been wonderful to hear about the breadth of work and the depth of work um, that you all have been engaging in when it comes to parent leadership and early relational health. Can you tell us about where this work is headed next? Like what is on the horizon for Nurture Connection? Um, yeah, so we're we're so excited. We we just went through um, a fantastic kind of planning process uh, with the perspectives of the steering committee and the Family Network Collaborative. Uh, the first year was really about what is this thing? 
Um, what is the vision for it? How is it structured? What are we trying to do collectively together? So we've set a strategic plan, um, a vision, a mission. We've launched a website. Um, and so now we're really entering into year two of this initiative, which is really exciting. So really our core goals over the next year are to raise awareness of nurture connection and early relational health, as Claudia said. So everyone knows now like, oh yeah, early relational health, of course, right? Um, so we're really putting out a lot of content, um, really pushing through our website, through our social channels, this issue of early relational health, the impact that it has, and nurture connection as that broader network or initiative pushing that movement forward. And we're looking to grow our network. So we are interested in others coming to join us in this collective work that we're doing. Um, again, anyone who is working on behalf of young kids and families, uh, please come join us. Visit our website, shoot us a note. We'd love to hear about the work that others are doing in this space and figure out how we might join together, learn from each other, collaborate in this. So it's really about raising awareness and growing our network, um, our core two goals over the coming year. And then I'll follow up by answering, in order to keep up <laughs> our parent partnership, what we know in the coming year, and it's actually part of our challenge, it's, a, it's both, is we know we're going to seed another pod. We think of this FNC, the Family Network Collaborative, as one pod. We know, of course, there's so many underrepresented, unheard voices that we know in this growing to always have this parent partnership around. And in good centering ways, we need to expand our resources of families. And so we'll build another pod. But I think we are definitely, the field is quite interested in this model. We're getting a lot of reaching into us about this particular model of partnership. And so um, I think it's calling us to a place of, okay, how are we going to grow in the speed that is sort of, this thing has taken off, and I don't mean just this model, Nurture Connections is taking off. So both the model and Nurture Connections is sort of in its own growth speed. And it's frankly one of our challenges, how we're going to, I'm confident we will navigate our way, way through this tension as well, but it is a tension <laughs> to think about how we're going to keep up with all of it and keep the quality in place. And I just want to add a tag because um, it so happened, Jennifer tagged me and I so appreciate, she's tracking pieces, that I had mentioned all of our parent leaders, our five of our six parent leaders, and I really want to take a moment to also uh, talk about Elisa is our parent representative who represents children with special health needs, health needs and disabilities. And she too brings this wonderful contribution into how that community thinks and she's sometimes our voice who reminds us of, woo, you know, we talk about eye contact. That happened yesterday in a meeting we were in and the importance of early eye contact and her bringing that voice in this, like, mm, you know, some of our children have autism and they can't do that. How can we put a tagline so that we're normalizing, oh, if this isn't happening, this is a good thing to ask your clinician about. So I just want to raise that because every one of these voices I, I could spend a whole hour in a podcast telling you the unique things each of these communities have brought that is so important to how we're being these gentle disruptors to the way the work is happening and really shifting some of the power structure in beautiful ways. Thank you for that, Bryn. Claudia or Mia, anything else you would like to share with the group before we wrap up? Well, I think... Um... In, in terms of my connection also with Reach Out and Re, for example, um, what's happening now and it will continue to happen in the future in relation because um, to nurture connection and early relational health is Reach Out and Re is a partner, right? It's, um, and it has taken an interest in seeing um, traditionally Reach Out and Re started at six months and now they're saying, no, we need to start this earlier, right? Um, that, that that's the part of early relational health, right? Right. What, how can through our organism of reach out and read in this network of pediatrician and nurse practitioners and other clinicians who are applying the reach out and read model, how can we integrate this concept of early relational health? And they have taken the step of revising their training for providers, right? For the doctors. 
and sending it out to the entire nationwide community and saying, you need to take the training again because this is important and we have a new component. And looking at everything, including from their marketing and all of the uh, materials um, that they might have to be able to um, integrate this wonderful concept um, that um, Reach Out and Read has been doing all along, you know, connecting families with their babies, just using this wonderful tool, which is a book. But how can we then take ownership of and the responsibility of joining forces with the movement in, in creating even more awareness and making sure that um, people stop to think about this, notice, and want to join and want to participate and say, how can I, how, how can I also be part of this wonderful movement? I want to so and say I'm I'm just so excited about moving forward, and some of the things I'm excited about I'm excited that um, nurtureconnections.org the website has launched, and so now I have a place to direct my community and my families to go and get a better understanding of the work. Um, excited and looking forward to the community partnerships and initiatives around early relational health that I'm sure are coming soon, and then the social channels and social media and things that come out of it, like being on this great podcast and being able to share um, Nurture Connection and early relational health work. Well, Mia, Claudia, Becky, and Bryn, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it has been um, an honor and a pleasure to learn it from and with you today. So thank you so much, and we will all be be sure to follow Nurture Connection going forward. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you're interested in learning more about what was discussed, you can find links to resources in the footnotes for this episode. We would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced and edited on the unceded traditional lands of the Coast Salish people including the Duwamish, Suquamish, Stilquamish, and Muckleshoot tribes. We honor with gratitude the land itself and the past, present, and futures of these tribes. The intro music for this episode was composed by Raphael Crooks, and our outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. And for those interested in more learning events, registration is now open for our upcoming online workshops happening in June and July. On June 21st and 22nd, we are hosting the workshop Introduction to Collective Impact and the Backbone Role, which will go over the foundations of collective impact and is a great workshop if you are new to thinking about collective impact work. And on July 11th and 13th, we are hosting the workshop Data and Learning in Collective Impact, which will be taking a deep dive into the various practices you can do to support data and learning within your collaborative work. Please visit our events section of collectiveimpactforum.org to learn more and register. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast host. I want to say thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you more in our next episode. Until next time, we hope you are safe and well.